are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Morning, church. Uh, text comes from Titus chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in the cop- at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speak Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All, sorry, all who are uh, with me send greetings to you. Greet those uh, who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the God. Good morning, church. Today, uh, we are concluding our series of sermons through Paul's epistle to Titus, and um, Paul is concluding his letter in chapter 3 with instructions for Titus concerning a few other individuals who are partnering with Paul in ministry to the churches. And before we look at verses 12 through 15, which Joe just read for us specifically, I'd like for us to recap where we have been. And so we're going to take a power walk through chapters 1 through 3. At the opening of Paul's letter to Titus, he expresses his love for Titus personally, who he calls his true child in a common faith, chapter 1, verse 4. So Titus was a younger man, at least younger than Paul, and he needed direction and encouragement. And Paul clearly has assumed a fatherly role, in Titus's life. Paul is saying, Titus, you're like a son to me. Words like that are powerful. I would personally respond very strongly and joyfully to an older man taking spiritual interest in my life, and so we shouldn't miss this example. Every young person in the church needs a spiritual father or spiritual mother, and we're going to come back to that as we make application later. Um, And even church leaders and maybe especially church leaders, need shepherding and encouragement. And Paul is giving that to Titus. Paul identifies himself in chapter 1 to Titus as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul has great authority to speak to Titus and to the churches, but he's also followed Jesus' example by humbling himself. He calls himself a servant. PJ taught us very faithfully about that several weeks back. And so Paul, just like Jesus, has poured out his life for the churches and for his disciples like Titus. And from these identities of apostle and servant, Paul says that he writes to Titus, for the sake of the elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. This is his purpose statement. This is why Paul does ministry, for the sake of the elect and for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So Paul's chief concern in this world was Jesus' church, their faith in the gospel, their protection from wolves and false teachers, and that their lives would live uh, in accordance with godly character that flows from a true knowledge of God. I want you to consider, in a real sense, Paul's shepherding heart for Titus and for the church in Crete is really an expression of Jesus' heart for us as Emmanuel Church. 
Everything that Paul had to say to Titus about the church is for us to hear and receive as well. Recall that Paul left Titus in Crete to bring order there by appointing elders. And note that Paul clearly desires a plurality of co-leaders, not just a one-man show. Paul is describing the qualifications of elders in chapter 1, and significantly, Buster pointed this out to us, almost every qualification is a character-based qualification rather than an ability-based qualification. So Paul obviously could not demand perfection of pastoral candidates, and neither could we, but he does require the church to identify men who have reputable behavior that's consistent and humble, that they live an unselfish lifestyle, that they're not in ministry for power or for gain, and that they have a commitment to protecting the truth of the gospel. Paul understood that people would not be well-led by a charismatic or power-hungry personality who lacked integrity in his life outside of the gathering or who had some ulterior motive for wanting to lead the church. And as Buster reminded us, the list of pastoral qualifications that we see in Titus and also in Timothy reveals to us that God cares that his church be well-shepherded so that no one would be abused or misled. And you may have experienced abusive or insincere leadership in the past from a pastor, but know that the good shepherd Jesus desires that you have a good under-shepherd. Paul asserts that one reason for the need to appoint a plurality of elders in Crete is that it's necessary to protect the church from the threat of false teaching. If you look at chapter 1, starting in verse 10, you see this. He specifically identifies in this place a circumcision party, he calls them, of Judaizers who were proclaiming a gospel of Christ plus law-keeping, some other external performance as a basis for righteousness. And this was causing division in the church. Paul said it was upsetting entire families in 111. It was likely creating an us versus them binary in the church, not to mention contradicting the message of the gospel itself. Paul says that they were teaching what they ought not to teach, Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Chapter 1, verse 14. Paul tells Titus that these people must be silenced. Chapter 1, verse 11, and Paul sees the appointment of faithful elders as part of the solution to divisive teaching. What we read about in Titus and and other books of the New Testament about the circumcision party and the Judaizers may seem like a non-issue for us because we don't have this uh, draw into Jewish law-keeping or tradition. But even we today have to learn from Paul's warnings to the New Testament churches like this one. Church history reveals that Jesus' church is nearly always under some sort of threat of a false gospel based on a legalistic works-based righteousness. And you might be wondering, how can we recognize that sort of teaching in our own culture or in our contemporary context? I would give you just a few marks of it from, from Titus. Paul says it's, it's full of empty talking, meaning that there's noise and volume, but not substance. A false teacher may have a lot to say, but does not have a lot to say. And what is said has no power to change the heart or to deal with our sin condition or give us hope of God's grace. Second, in, in Titus 1.15, Paul says that to the pure, all things are pure, but to these people, to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing 
is pure. This means that false teachers will find fault even with what God has said is good. They find offense in innocent, lawful conduct. They're not satisfied with the simple message of the gospel and the law of love. The gospel is not enough for them. Moving away from Titus for a second, Jesus in Matthew 23 described the Pharisees like this. He said they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger to remove those burdens. So another mark of a a false teacher might be that they make following Jesus unmercifully difficult on others, but easy for themselves. They don't extend grace, and they don't point people to Jesus for rest and grace. In Matthew 15, Jesus said, They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. And that's just the same language that Paul uses about these uh, the circumcision party, is that they're teaching their own commands. Often the requirement <coughs> that a false teacher will pile on to another is not God's law, but his own. And so, interestingly, human commands that say, don't taste, don't touch... Don't look, whatever it may be, can be more easily kept than God's commands, which, which are hard um, to ultimately keep perfectly. That's why we need Jesus. And so I could say more about this, but I hope that it helps you put your finger on what a legalistic false teaching might look like or sound like so that you can recognize it. And this was the very sort of thing that was dividing the church and upsetting Cretan Christians who are under Titus's care. So Titus and the elders that he is supposed to identify and appoint had to be able to recognize false teaching that was in opposition to sound doctrine, and then they had to have this ability to verbally refute it, to contradict it, to correct it. Paul tells Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, both to exhort and to rebuke when necessary, with all authority, If you skip ahead to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For any person who stirs up division over foolish controversies or genealogies or quarrels about the law, he says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. So there's not to be any tolerance for a person who continues to create division after being warned. In contrast to that false teaching, There is an emphasis on pure teaching and sound doctrine in the book of Titus. It's one of the major themes. He says that sound doctrine will accord with godliness, with good character. You see that from the outset, from verse 1, chapter 1. You see it again in chapter 2, verse 1. The sound doctrine that Paul once proclaimed and taught and modeled was not based on some external conformity to a law, but rather an internal transformation by God's saving work of grace. It's what's described in chapter 3, verse 5, as the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that washes us. Sound doctrine is the message of hope in this gospel for sinners to be changed and made saints in Jesus Christ. It's not be changed in your own strength. It's let God change you. Let God make you new. Paul repeatedly talks about sound doctrine, but doesn't always define it as the gospel of grace. In some places in the letter, sound doctrine is just assumed that we understand what he means, like in chapter 2, verse 1. 
And so surely Titus understood, though, that God's grace is at the basis of sound doctrine because Paul's entrusted this church to his care. But sound doctrine is defined explicitly when you get to chapter 3, near the end of the letter. This is where John Tavius preached last week. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, this is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. You can't neglect the gospel, is Paul's message. Pastoral epistles like Titus are structured differently than, say, the book of Romans or Ephesians, where the front end is loaded with doctrine and the back end makes all these clean applications of the doctrine. But in the pastoral epistles, you have doctrine and application just woven together, constantly interspersed throughout the letter. And so that we make sure that we didn't miss it, the theme of God's grace is elsewhere in this letter. Paul greets Titus in chapter 1, verses 4, with the grace of God, which he said gives hope of eternal life. It was promised before the ages began and manifested at the proper time in Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul explains that godly living will flow from an understanding of and knowledge of God's gift of grace. And so he announces that the grace of God has appeared and it trains us or disciplines us into godliness and uprightness, takes us away from worldliness and ungodliness. It might seem to us that the way to be holier is to exert more effort at becoming holy, but Paul says holiness is the product of ongoing discipline of grace at work in us, changing us. We never outgrow this need for grace. And then in chapter 3, Paul encourages Titus again that because we have been justified, as we just read, or declared righteous by God and chosen by him in his mercy, not on the basis of our works, but totally because he loves us, even after we had previously lived a foolish and disobedient life, we should be a kind, submissive, patient person with everyone because God has been so kind and patient with us. And we can be this way, Paul says to Titus, even with our opponents. This is especially important to note as a, a pastoral epistle that even though Titus and the elders are called to rebuke and to correct those who are challenging sound doctrine, causing divisions in the church, church leaders are still supposed to be uh, holy in the way they confront. Um, they're not to sin in response to sin. And so rebuking requires great humility. It requires remembering I was foolish, I was disobedient, and God was patient with me. And so leaders are to demonstrate patience and give opportunities for repentance. The remainder of the letter to Titus, I would say, is summed up like this. From this grace that is so evident in Jesus, not for this grace, but from this grace, the church should do good works and live upright, godly, and blameless lives. That's the majority of the book of Titus right there. If you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, chapter 3, verses 
1 through 8, that's, that's the call repeatedly to the church. Titus is to faithfully teach the church and remind them that the gospel compels them to live this way. These lives of good works cannot be lived in isolation, but publicly in community. Both of those things matter there. Publicly, let, let the world see your witness in community, together, not individually, but together. And this is so different from many contemporary ideas about church existing to serve us and what we want and when we want it, or the idea that we can compartmentalize part of our life, and this is my church life, and this is the rest of my life. Believing that our choices and our behaviors only impact ourselves and not the whole body. In chapter 2, Paul gives very specific instructions for older men and women to live exemplary lives that younger men and women would want to respect and follow. And Paul tells younger men and women to be self-controlled and to live in a countercultural way of mutual submission in marriage. And Paul even says that servants should adorn the doctrine of God by being what we would call today a good and honest employee for their earthly masters. For after all, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared for all people, the rich and the poor alike, the powerful and the low. To sum it all up, Buster says this. Buster was going to preach today. I'm borrowing from Buster some. He says, the book of Titus cast a beautiful picture of what the local church is intended to be like, how we are to live in a compelling and countercultural way to display Christ clearly. Titus makes us realize how much care and love God has for his church. He wants it to be led well and to flourish, and he also wants the church to live in a way that helps strengthen their gospel message and witness to the culture. The way they live is an apologetic to the Cretans. That was very well said. Thank you, Buster. And so that's our, our recap of where we've been in Titus. And now we're going to look briefly at the closing remarks and make some applications for our church. So in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so, that, to, so to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It's assumed that Artemis and Tychicus are the ones that are bringing this letter to Titus. Uh, Artemis is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. There is another brother named Tychicus who is mentioned four other times in the New Testament. We don't have any reason to believe that this is not the same guy. Um, Acts chapter 20 tells us that he was from the province of Asia, which is part of modern-day Turkey. And in Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6, Paul praises Tychicus and says that he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord. So this was a man on whom uh, Paul regularly relied um, for cooperation and help. The arrival of these brothers at Crete and Titus's installation of elders, as he's been instructed to do, frees Titus to go back to Paul. Paul tells him where he can be found in Nicopolis, which was a city in modern-day Greece on the Mediterranean. Paul wants Titus to come to him, presumably for their mutual encouragement 
and for determining where they should focus their efforts next. And Paul also wants the church and Titus to make sure that Zenos, the lawyer, uh, another translation that would probably be clearer, you're thinking lawyer, you're thinking of this guy with a briefcase and a tie. Um, this was more like a, a scribe, uh, a person uh, who is literate and, and a writer. Uh, he says he wants Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos to be equipped and sent out as soon as possible. Apollos is mentioned several other places in the New Testament, and we assume that this is the same Apollos. We have no reason to doubt that it is. And he was a North African Jew from the city of Alexandria. He's introduced in Acts chapter 18. And Apollos had a significant ministry and impact in the church, especially the church in Corinth. He, his name comes up a lot in the letters to the Corinthians. And he was so popular there that Paul had to encourage the church not to be factious and to say, I follow Apollos. I don't listen to Paul. I follow Apollos. And remarkably, Paul didn't see that as competition. He saw Apollos not as a rival, but as a co-laborer for the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's beautiful. To see... Uh, another person as a co-laborer and not competition. Paul is evidently supportive of Apollos' ministry. Wherever he and Zenos are going, we don't know. Perhaps back to North Africa. And there is this urgency in Paul's heart for them to be sent along well and quickly. So he says, see that they lack nothing. The church in this time, much like today, was responsible for meeting the needs of those who are giving themselves full-time to ministry, traveling and serving as missionaries and supporters of the gospel. Um, You may not be aware of this, but we have a missionary family in Birmingham right now, uh, kind of unexpectedly home for a season, looking for uh, their next move and trying to get their bearings. Uh, Joe Hannon knows them well. If you'd like to support uh, some missionaries locally, pray for them, feed them, encourage them, get to know them. Don't be intimidated. Um, Reach out to Joe and um, receive them. Uh, This is is part of the New Testament model for us, that we would receive people who are giving their lives in complete full-time service to ministry to make the gospel advance. So let's, let's join. Let's be part of that. Paul writes in verse 14, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul has just said that Apollos and Zenos need to be supported and sent well by the church. And so when he says our people, presumably he means all those who are faithful believers in Crete. The church there is called to be generous with these brothers in their time and their talent and their treasure to support the ministry. Significantly, right doctrine, which is a focus and a theme of this letter, leads to right practice. And so if you believe the gospel is not just for yourself but has implications for others, then you will see when you consider the gospel, God is a good and generous, merciful God. And so I should be a good and generous, merciful person. Can it be said of us, Emmanuel, that we are devoted to good works, fruitful and helping cases of urgent need? Paul concludes the letter with expressions of greetings for others and from others. 
He knows many people on Crete, and he cannot call them all by name. So he asks Titus to extend his love to them, and he closes with a blessing of grace. We should follow Paul's example, greet one another with constant, refreshing reminders of God's grace, remind each other that God is gracious, remind each other that God is for us, remind each other that we are loved. As we depart from studying Titus, what are some applications for Emmanuel? As I mentioned earlier, Buster wanted to preach this message today, and so you may hear his voice uh, through some of the words that I'll share with you in application, and sometimes it's Ben and sometimes it's Buster, but these are some uh, um, themes or, or some applications from the themes of Titus that we would like to stress to you. Um, we always emphasize gospel community at Emmanuel. It's part of what we think the church is supposed to be. And we strongly believe that believers need life with other believers, life on life, living as family. We also believe that we need to fulfill our identities in Christ as servants and missionaries. These are not our ideas. These are God's ideas. Think about who God is. God is a relational, knowable, communicating person. And we are creatures who have been made in that image to relate, to know, and to communicate. And so we thrive and grow and bear the most fruit when we are interacting with, serving, and being served by other people, particularly other Christians who share our priority for Jesus and his gospel. God also taught us through his own heart revealed in the person of Jesus, who was the lead servant and the consummate missionary, who became a man in order to save men, We are called to follow his example. We're not greater than our master. We must grow in faith and love for God by serving and pursuing other people who don't know God. So life on life in community centered around the gospel is the place where these identities that we think are precious, family, servants, missionaries, these things come to realization. They are in the flesh in gospel community. Gospel community groups are a means to serve that purpose. They are intended to be diverse groups. They are going to look strange to outsiders. You should find all sorts of people in a gospel community group because the main thing that they have in common, sometimes the only thing, is Jesus. So you should find all ages in a gospel community. Older believers need younger believers and their zeal so that older people don't grow complacent or sour. And younger believers need older people so that they learn humility, temperance, soberness, and speech. You should find both women and men in community. As Paul implies in chapter 2 of Titus, men need community with older men to help them find their security in and contentment with their identities as men, fathers, sons, brothers. Likewise, women need community with other women for gender-specific discipleship. To a lesser extent, but a real extent, men and women also need each other in mixed company to learn to respect and honor their differences, to benefit from each other's spiritual gifts, to learn and grow from one another's wisdom, 
In a gospel community, you will also find both singleness and marriage. Married people need to consider and welcome single people and vice versa. In a gospel community, you will find children and babies. If you come to mind, they outnumber the grown-ups. People with children at home need to honor people without children and vice versa. You will find all personality types in gospel community. People who have a lot to say need to learn to listen to people who are less opinionated. People who have, are just used to having their way um, must learn to submit to other people, to honor other people's needs and desires is just as important or more important than their own. In a gospel community, you will find varying levels of maturity in Christ. People who are mature need to make disciples, and people who are not mature need to be loved and discipled. Even skeptics and doubters may arrive in a gospel community group, and they need the pure witness of people who are convinced about Jesus. You may find people who are not accountable, who need to be held accountable. All these sorts of people come to gospel community, and they bring their baggage with them. And you deal with it there. You will find different income levels in gospel community. And the wealthy need to rub elbows with and learn from the poor of this world, like James teaches us. They need to learn to be compassionate, considerate, generous with others. And all of us, no matter who we are, need a break from the echo chamber of social media. We need in-person, face-to-face community with actual human beings, sharing meals, talking about life, even with people who see the world differently than we do. If you do not currently feel challenged to consider someone else as more important than yourself, if you don't regularly feel convicted about exposure of your idols, if you don't love someone, even someone you don't like very much, you you probably need more gospel community in your life. All these things happen there. My hope is that when my neighbors look out their window at 5.30 on a Sunday afternoon and see a lot of very different people swarming my house for GC, they will know Jesus must be real. This is weird. Buster says, there is a need to fight for community and invest in relationships during this season. I think he means while we wait for a new pastor. Relationships are a means of grace in our lives. The Lord holds his church together by tethering saints together in deep relationship. Don't you want that in your church? Don't you want to be known and loved and accepted and encouraged? These relationships are all formed through time in gospel community. I think that's important to note, through time. It takes time. You may be skeptical of GC. You may have been burned in GC. You may have tried it or something like it in the past in another church and found it uncomfortable or unfulfilling. And I would like to stress to you that you have to be patient with community. And remember, it's not just for your benefit, but also for the benefit of others. God will not waste your time in community. When we became members of Emmanuel six years ago, my first GC experience was weird. And I can say that because nobody that was in it is here still. (laughs) 
So you're, it's good. It's good, Tillman. It's good. Good few quays. <clears throat> when we became members, uh, we were at least 10 years older than everyone else in the group. We were the only people with children. And I felt generationally out of step, even though I was like 31 or 32. I felt old, 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 old. And I was often a little judgmental of the immaturity that I was seeing there when it was actually just very normal for people who were 22, 23. And I could not relate to most of those people, and they could not relate to me, but I know that that was the point. We had to be there together to consider each other, talk, listen, learn, pray, suffer, rejoice, bear burdens, share life, do menial things like move each other's furniture, repair each other's cars, provide meals in crisis, assist with job losses and job searches, pursue hospitality with outsiders who we wanted to know Jesus. And all of that had an effect of creating a bond that was a compelling witness. And it, it shaped me, changed me. Importantly, we do not seek community for ourselves, but we are open-handed with community, inviting others in to taste and see what God is doing. So GC is not a circle of holy friends that somebody on the outside has to try to break through. There should not be an effort for somebody to have to get into your GC. Think of yourself more like a horseshoe. You're holding hands, but there are loose ends, and you are ready to take somebody else on from any direction. Buster says, if we pursue community without this focus of mission, it will eventually turn inward on itself and become self-centered. As we pursue mission as a community, it unites us together in a powerful way. If you notice in the book of Titus, the type of bond that is formed when people collaborate on mission, look at Paul and Titus's love and devotion for each other. Bonds that form in the trenches when we work together for a common goal are strong and long-lasting. So we should emulate this example as we pursue community together. Sometimes for a season, we are separated from those that we love and those that we want to see the most. Think about Paul and Titus. They would have rather been together doing ministry, but they willingly separated themselves to share the gospel and to build the church. Sometimes we don't get our preference in our GC relationships. We don't get to be with the people we, we want to be with because God has us in a different place for a different season for a different purpose. And so our sacrifice of preference is part of the calling to live on mission, and it's worth it. God will make up what we feel like we have lost. So for all of you who are committed to a GC currently, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Keep pressing in, even if it's challenging. Don't give up. God will bear fruit. If you need specific encouragement or direction, please see me or one of the other pastors. If doing life together feels comfortable for you, though, and unchallenging, ask yourself, has this GC become too inwardly focused? Is our identity more about our common affinity, the things that we like, our life stage, than it is about our common faith in Jesus? Have we forgotten our mission to make disciples of the real Jesus 
If so, what needs to change? What conversations need to happen in your group to refocus on making the real Jesus known through gospel community? If you're not committed to a GC currently, I am imploring you to join one. The pastors all want you in a GC. We don't care which GC you choose. Just connect to one. Start investing your life there to others. Then watch the Spirit make a difference in your life and theirs. At the conclusion of our service today, we're going to have a time dedicated to uh, your introduction, if you need it, to a GC leader. And so every one of our GC leaders will have some, excuse me, every one of our GCs will have uh, a representative um, to meet you and greet you and to connect you, help you find a place and a home that's at a time and location that that serves you well. Uh, Jessica has printed new information sheets. They're in the back on the the white cabinet as you walk out. Uh, But they have each of our gospel communities for the fall uh, listed with their dates and times and addresses and primary contact information. If you need that information, please don't walk out without it today. Or if you know somebody uh, who's not here who could use that, please pick one up for them and pass it along. Um, We would love to see you connected into the life of a GC. So please, please make use of that. Um, We're going to pray now. And as we pray, let's think about all, all that we have digested from Titus and give thanks to God for his word to us. Father, we are so humbled and grateful that even though we were disobedient and foolish and rebellious, you gently, mercifully rescued us Hold us, set us apart in Jesus through redemption by his blood. We are humbled that you would give us the gift of community, that you would give us older brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters, men, women, all kinds to be family to us. Help us to be that family to each other. God, compel us to live in uh, an unselfish way for one another, to open our homes, open our lives, open our hearts, our hands, both to each other, to fellow believers of all kinds, and also to outsiders who don't yet know you. God, compel us by your spirit to live missionary lifestyles, to give ourselves away. Lord, change us. Grow your church. Give us this this community that we covet. Lord, uh, prepare us to be a a, a better congregation, to, to follow and receive instruction from a new pastor with this renewed zeal 
for godly living, for community, and for good deeds. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.